And it's uh, the, mere, the work of the providence of God that God was working to preserve what we have today as the New Testament and the Bible as a whole. The reason that we have it and we have it accurately and uh, it's uh, historically attested and verified is because what happened is when Paul wrote the letters to these churches or when Luke wrote uh, his account of the gospel and the book of Acts or when John wrote his letters or Peter or Matthew or the other authors, these were sent out to the churches and then they were shared among one another. So copies were made and copies of those copies were made and copies of those copies were made. And so within the first few hundred years after Christ, thousands of copies of the New Testament letters were spread all around the world. And so uh, many of those copies, those manuscripts exist to this day, and they provide us our New Testament. God in his providence was using these means to preserve the scriptures, and they were written to these churches to edify and to instruct them. And the book to the, the, the book of Ephesians, the letter to the saints of Ephesus, is filled with some of the most precious instruction, doctrine, encouragement that we have. Uh, it is in the book of uh, uh, Ephesians that Paul, in great detail, lays out God's plan of salvation that God intended from before the foundation of the world according to the purpose of his will to provide a means of salvation for his people, not just for the Jews who were set apart in the Old Testament times, but also for the Gentiles as well in every nation of the world, and that they would be united together in one body in the church, and that God would save them by grace, not by works. And it's in the book of Ephesians that he then goes on to describe the manner of life that would be lived in this new community that God was establishing. And all these precious things are taught in this letter to the Ephesians. But our um, learning in, in the New Testament about the Ephesians doesn't start in that letter. It goes back to the book of Acts, which describes how that body of saints, how those, that church was established in the first place through God sending to them the word of God in various means. So if you want to follow along, you can turn back to the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, or you can just listen along as I reference some of these things. But I want to tell some stories that are told to us in Acts about the Ephesians. Because even though this this city, this church, this goes back 2,000 years, yet the work that God did there is relevant to us today, first of all, because of the example that it sets. Many of the things in the Bible are preserved. It says the things that happened to them aforetime were written for our learning. They're written so that we would have comfort in the truth, that we would be instructed and we would learn from their example. So it's, it's good for an example. Secondly, it's beneficial to us because God's means of salvation for people that lived 2,000 years ago is the same today as it was then. 
God has not changed. The way of salvation has not changed. The grace of God has not changed, even though their circumstances were very different. And the time in which they lived was very different and special in ways that we'll see. Yet God's grace, salvation through Jesus Christ, and the examples that we have are just as relevant today as they were to them back then. So what was this place, Ephesus? Ephesus was one of the most important cities in the ancient world. The city itself uh, existed, it goes back several thousand years, even before the time of Christ. And it was um, in the time of Christ and the apostles after him, it was at that time one of the most important cities. One of the things that the city of Ephesus was known for was there was a temple in that city called the Temple of Artemis or Diana, uh, Greek and uh, Roman names for the same goddess. And that temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It was magnificent. And the people came from all over the world to visit the Temple of Diana And the influence of it was uh, spread throughout the world. This was one of the things they were known for. It was also a port city uh, as part of the Greek and then Roman Empire, which is uh, that city would now be in modern day Turkey on the Mediterranean Sea. So a, a place of significance, religiously, economically, culturally, it was a very significant place in the ancient world. And the Apostle Paul, in his travels, He goes to Ephesus, and um, it describes that in Acts 18, 18. Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then he took his leave of the brethren and sailed into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Centuria, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Uh, When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh into Jerusalem. So the first time he goes to Ephesus, he he only stays a short time. But Paul had two friends, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, close friends of his. They were people that were his companions in the work of spreading the message of the good news of Jesus. They labored with him. They also labored with him uh, in material things as well. They were of the same craft. They built tents. They built places for people to dwell. And they worked together in that. And uh, he comes to Ephesus and he leaves them there. He goes into the synagogue. This was a place where the Jews came together to worship, to read the, uh, the scriptures, and to be instructed by their teachers of whom Paul was one of them. And Paul used his position and his opportunity to teach them about Jesus, to instruct them in how God's plan declared in the prophets for ages was now coming to its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. God had promised a ruler that would rise up from among the people to reign over God's kingdom. That is Jesus. God had promised that he would provide a means of uh, 
atonement for them. That's Jesus. God had promised that in the age to come, he would unite both the Jews and the Gentiles from all nations together into one people, and that would happen under Jesus. The kingdom of God, the new covenant. God had promised a new covenant, a new order of things that he would establish, which would, in which that age, that he would remember their sins and their iniquities no more. That was accomplished in Jesus. So Paul had, you know, what we call the gospel or good news. He had good news to announce to the Jews in the synagogues and the Gentiles who attended them as well, to announce that God's promises were coming to fruition, had come to fruition during their very lives in the events that had happened nearby in Jerusalem. With the ministry of Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection and defeat over death, his ascension up to heaven, his being seated on the right hand of the Father in heaven, all of these things were working together to fulfill God's plan to bring deliverance, salvation, the forgiveness of sins, peace to the people. That word peace, when he writes to the Ephesians and he says, grace be with you and peace, that word peace comes from the Hebrew idea of shalom, which describes a harmonious state of existence between God and man. The word implies completeness, wholeness, something that is something, a society, a a way of existing that is completely and utterly healthy, wholesome, full, abounding with God's blessings, harmonious, without strife, without wickedness, without sin. That is that peace that was brought into being through Jesus Christ. Who we, who we speak of as the Prince of Peace. The one who brings peace uh, through his sacrifice. And so this was the message that he was able to announce. And he goes in and he reasoned with them. And as was often the case, there were those that embraced the message that he was speaking. And there were those that rejected it. And some that rejected it, rejected him and sought to destroy him. Throw him in prison, have him put to death. And thus... Um, all the trials that Paul went through. Uh, then it describes to us, after Paul leaves Ephesus, another man that came into Ephesus, a man by the name of Apollos, chapter, uh, verse 24. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. Alexandria, uh, interestingly, Alexandria was known as a place of great knowledge and culture in the ancient world as well. They were known for the great library of Alexandria. It was a place where the pinnacle of, of ancient thought and philosophy and knowledge was. And Apollos is a very educated and he's described as an eloquent person. He was someone who could get up and speak to, to a crowd of people and people would be uh, 
persuaded by his words. People would be astounded by his ability of rhetoric and speech. And when we first learn about Apollos, Apollos is described as knowing something about what God was doing in that time, but it seems like he only has a partial picture of it. Uh, let's, let's read on. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. That's an interesting phrase. So to understand that, we have to think back to the New Testament, how much of the New Testament starts. Before Jesus ever went out and began preaching and teaching, there was a prophet that went before him named John, who we often call John the Baptist, because he, made, he got great attention by baptizing people in the Jordan River. And he preached a message, and John's message was about the coming of God's kingdom. He preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he preached about the coming judgment of God. He said, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Speaking about the nation of Israel, speaking about their whole society, that God's judgment was about to come. He, he talked to the Pharisees that came to his baptism. He says, who has warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? God's fiery judgment was about in that generation to come upon that nation and destroy them. But God was also at that time setting up his kingdom, which would replace the old, and so John was come to make ready the way for the coming of Jesus, to warn the people, to repent, to turn from their sin, and to turn towards God, to make themselves ready for the coming of the Messiah. And Apollos seems to know about at least this, but um, it says he knew only the baptism of John, which... In my understanding, he did not know all about everything that Jesus had done. But he's, he's trying to teach the people. He's trying to prepare them. Um, and he's speaking, it says, boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So notice their patience. Um, you know, they see this very eloquent person. They see he's zealous for the truth. But he's, his knowledge is incomplete. And we might meet people from time to time like that in our lives, in our time. People who are zealous, people who are part of the way there, but their uh, knowledge is incomplete. And the approach that they have is one of patience. And it says they take him. And they instruct him in the way of God more perfectly. That is, uh, more completely. To fill out the picture. And it also shows, in this, the humility that Apollos had. You know, he was, he was not so proud, even though he was an eloquent speaker, he was not so proud as to not be willing to hear instruction from this couple as they took him and they taught him what they knew and filled out his knowledge. 
And so it says, when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, whom, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Now, when, when someone is able to do this, you know, and, and there are people today in our day and age who are very skilled at uh, either in the form of a debate or maybe it's a speech, a way of taking the knowledge and the evidence and the history and everything and being able to persuade and teach people about the truth of God, about Jesus, about the truthfulness of his resurrection that they're uh, what we often call apologetics, not after Apollos' name, but uh, that's the idea, is that apologetics is a term for defense of the faith. The idea of uh, making those intellectual, historical, scriptural arguments to prove to people the truth of the message that we have. And what this is able to do is this is able to be an encouragement to God's people of their confidence in the truth to remove the uh, mental obstacles that they may have for embrace of the truth. Because you see, ultimately, uh, ultimately, no one comprehends spiritual things without the power of God's enlightening their mind and their spirit. Mm -hmm. That means that the most convincing arguments the most persuasive uh, logic is not ultimately going to change somebody's heart. But I think of it like this. When God is working on changing someone's heart, God's spirit is working in them. Those reasoning, those arguments, those proofs and examples and, and, and all of those things can work to encourage them and help them along by removing the doubts and the obstacles that they might have in their understanding. In this case, it says, he helped them much which had believed through grace. So their belief, their faith in God came by God's grace, and they were encouraged by the persuasive Arguments that he was able to do, not only privately, but publicly, he could convince the crowds that Jesus was Christ. Something that we take for granted today in our world. Um, Jesus was Christ. Well, we say his very identity. He is Jesus Christ. But the meaning of that in the context, that is you know, at that time, there were many people who knew of Jesus and they had a concept of Christ and they didn't necessarily know that the two went together. See, because Christ, same word as Messiah, which means the anointed one, was a concept that the people had in their understanding that they didn't necessarily associate with Jesus. They believed that God was going to send a king and a priest to reign over them, to deliver them from their enemies, be their savior. And this is who the anointed one was. And so what he was convincing them, 
This man that you've been waiting for, the one that the Old Testament prophets said that up from the line of David, from the lineage of the great King David, God will raise up a ruler over the people who will be a savior. The one whom when, when uh, Isaiah the prophet writes, uh, those words that are often sung and remembered around, around Christmas about... Uh, the promises of God. Uh, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. An awesome promise that, that they believed or that they were aware of, but until it was announced to them and taught to them by the good news of the gospel, they did not yet understand that those words spoke of the man Jesus of Nazareth. Apollos was able to convince them he was able to go back into those Old Testament scriptures and show, look, look at this promise and this promise and this promise and see how Jesus perfectly fulfills the words of the prophets and the law. See how he perfectly fulfills the model of sacrifice in the Old Testament. See how he fulfills the words of Isaiah when it speaks about one who would suffer for the iniquities of the people and so on. And so he teaches the people, and it came to pass. Uh, so later on, Paul goes, uh, I mean, Apollos goes to Corinth, and then Paul comes back through Ephesus. This is in chapter 19, and it says, He finds certain disciples, and he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Now, the Holy Spirit... God had uh, promised that he would give to his church the Holy Spirit in a special way. And, and in Acts chapter 2, we have the fulfillment of that in the life of the church when God pours out the Holy Spirit on the disciples on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus. God pours out his Spirit and... Uh, all the Jews from many different nations, from many different languages, are gathered together in Jerusalem at that time for the Feast of Pentecost, which was the first fruits feast. And they're gathered together there. And while they're there, God works a very interesting miracle. He causes tongues of fire to come down upon the disciples. Uh, Peter and James and John and the others are there, the apostles, and they begin uh, to be heard preaching the good news of Jesus. And all the people there from all different languages are each hearing the word of God preached in their own language. It was a it was a miracle. In other words, uh, there were people there speaking languages that they had never learned. 
And they were speaking them clearly and proclaiming them with truth. And people that did know those languages were hearing the word of God in their own language. This is one of the first miracles that God does after the ascension of Jesus among the church. And it was a powerful one. And it was a sign. It was a sign to the people that God's word was now going out to all the nations. God had for a time in the old covenant, he'd set apart the people of Israel. But now it was a testimony and a sign to them that the word of God was going out to all the nations of the world. I think about it in contrast to another story in the Bible. You might have remember hearing about the Tower of Babel. There was a time when all humanity spoke one language and understood each other. And at the Tower of Babel, God confuses their languages and that scatters the nations among the, the whole earth. He put a division among the people in the earth. Well, when God worked his miracle at, on the day of Pentecost in giving what's called the uh, speaking in tongues, tongues means languages, speaking in all the different languages, he was doing a kind of reversal of that division of the languages. In, in, in other words, when at the Tower of Babel, God divided the people and spread them out among the nations, at Pentecost, God was uniting a diverse people together into one body. Yet not by destroying or eliminating their differences, but by uniting them together in a sign that showed that now they would be able to communicate together. They'd be united by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, so God, so God get, and, and you'll see why I spend time bringing that up in a moment here. Paul asked them, uh, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they had not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And he said unto them, unto what then were ye baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. Now we have to kind of read between the lines what was going on here. Why does Paul immediately ask about their baptism? Well, how is baptism performed in the church of Jesus Christ? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, what happened? There was a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit came down and settled on him like a dove upon Jesus. What did John proclaim when he baptized people with water? He says, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say when he sent his disciples out to baptize? He said, go forth, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I think that's why. See, they didn't understand. They had heard of something, but um, they didn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't know about the Holy Spirit and all that had been done. And so he asked them, what were you baptized into? They said, under John's baptism. 
But not by John the Baptist, because John the Baptist taught about the Holy Spirit. Probably by somebody else who had heard about what John was doing, taught them. So again, we have people who have a partial understanding. And Paul clarifies and expounds to them. He says, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. So this is some of the early disciples at Ephesus. And again, as there was often a a continuation of this miracle during this time, it says they spake with tongues. That was not a gibberish sounds. That was languages. That was real languages that they were able to speak miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not things that they had learned or known, but they were suddenly able to speak in other languages. Again, God in this time working special signs and wonders as he built up the foundation of the church. And it says there are about 12. So again, we see a pattern of people with a partial understanding, God sending them the truth to instruct them more perfectly and instructing them more perfectly. The purpose was always united around this one thing, to point them to an understanding that they might have a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. See, they've been taught something. They've been taught about repenting from their sins. They've been taught about the coming of God's kingdom. And these were glorious truths. And it says they're, they're described as, how are they described? Disciples. Disciples. They're described as disciples. But Paul can fill out their understanding with the most important part of all, how all of those things, repentance, faith, God's kingdom, all of those things center on Jesus Christ. And later on in the book of Ephesians, you see how God's plan and God's purpose in the new covenant, in the kingdom of God, is all centered in Jesus Christ. God's plan, it says, to unite things in heaven and in earth all in one, in Jesus. How he is the fulfillment of all these things. That he is the, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That he in all things might have the preeminence. So your hope, your hope of God's forgiveness of your sins, the ability to repent and turn from sin to God, the hope of of, uh, victory over death, all centered in Jesus Christ, what he has done in sacrificing himself and conquering death in his resurrection is the source of, and center of all of your hope today, just as it was then, almost 2,000 years ago. And so we begin to see how the foundation of this church in Ephesus was built. Well, it goes on to, to tell a little bit more about some of the things that were going on at this time. It says... 
that he went into the synagogue, verse 8, and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spoke evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. So he, he labors in the synagogue for three months. And as long as there was an open door, as long as there was an opportunity for him to try to reach the people there, he patiently labored in that. One of the things that you know, we, we, wrestle, we have to wrestle with sometimes in our life when we're trying to, uh, trying to help somebody, trying to guide somebody to the truth, is to know, you know how long do we endure that? How long do we labor? And, and Paul had that experience here with the synagogues. He was teaching them, and some people were believing it, but many people were debating him, arguing against him, rejecting the things that he was teaching, but he patiently continued and persisted for three months, and then when that was not fruitful anymore... He goes and he ends up uh, working out of this school of Tyrannus and continued for years, two years, to teach. And, and this was the result. It said, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And I think we're, you know, at this time, when it's talking about Asia, it's talking about um, not what we think of as the whole continent of Asia, but that part of the, the Greek uh, Roman Empire at that time. And it says, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. It talks about um, here, Paul, and then in other places in Acts, this happened with Peter and the other apostles. That they worked miracles uh, very similar, just like the miracles that Jesus did, his apostles did after him. Jesus healed the lame. They healed the lame. Jesus um, raised the dead. The apostles at different times raised the dead. Uh, he, Jesus cast out demons. His apostles after him also cast out demons. Jesus actually said to his disciples that they would work greater works than he did in terms of their miracles because he was going away from them. He was here for, us for three years. They labored for decades carrying on the work of Jesus. And they worked these mighty miracles. And just a matter of historical fact, there were great miracles performed in, the, in that first generation of the Christian church. And I believe God, at any time, in any place, can do miracles, does do miracles. I believe he constantly is doing incredible things. But in terms of the intensity of the signs and the miracles, historically, they more or less stopped after that first generation. And people have often wondered, why, why is that? Why is it that God was giving them the miracle of speaking in these languages, healing the sick, um, healing diseases, casting out demons, 
mighty works, even raising the dead at different times. What was going on with all of this? And did that stop? Did God remove his blessings from the earth when those things stopped? I don't think so. Notice what it says. God wrought special miracles by the hand of Paul. Something else we'll see later in Ephesians is that Paul speaks about the construction of the new covenant community of the church, of the kingdom of God, and he describes it as a building. He uses a temple analogy because the temple um, was the habitation of God on earth. It was where the presence of God came down to dwell with the people. But in the new covenant, it's not a building. It's not a physical building made with hands. It's a spiritual building made up of people. He says, it is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. He says, and ye also are built built up together with them a habitation of God through the Spirit. Peter says, ye are living stones. And they describe in the New Covenant the temple. It's not a physical building. As precious as this building is, and it's a place of worship, this is not the New Covenant temple. We are the New Covenant temple. Ye are the body of the Holy Spirit. Where God's Spirit dwells, it dwells in God's people, like living stones making up a new covenant temple where God's presence has come to dwell forever. And that was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It was important that that the truthfulness of their testimony and their message be established even as Jesus himself in his ministry was established by miraculous signs and wonders, the witness and testimony of the apostles was also attended with signs and wonders and miracles that testified of the truthfulness of what they were saying. Those almost 500 witnesses, over 500, it says witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Their testimony formed the foundation of the new covenant people of God. And we build today on that foundation. We don't need to lay another foundation. We don't need to establish another foundation. I don't come here to this church, stand up here, and teach you some new thing. I am, if I'm being faithful to God's calling for me... I am continuing on by proclaiming the same message that Jesus taught and told his disciples after him to teach to all the nations of the world. And if I'm doing it right, I'm conveying that same message to you today. Not building a new foundation, not starting a new building, but continuing to build upon the very foundation that has been built and established. And we have God's word as the, as the authority for the truthfulness of what is said then and now. And so he continued and he worked these 
special miracles. And then, um, just to, to wrap this up with one, one final example here from this story that laid the foundation of that Ephesian church, it's uh, almost, almost humorous what happens next is there's, there's these, um, these Jews, they're described as vagabond Jews, exorcists. It sounds like there's these, these guys, basically, they're going off on their own, and they're casting out demons. And they start hearing about how powerful things are happening by the hand of Paul and in the name of Jesus. And, and they, you know, you know, people embrace religion and religious things for different reasons. There's a right reason and there's many wrong reasons. The right reason is the glory of God is to walk in a way pleasing in his sight, is to draw closer to God and live our lives pleasing to him. But there are many wrong reasons. And one of the wrong reasons that people embrace religion is they see that there's power in it. And they want to harness that power for themselves. To puff themselves up. They want to be a part of something powerful. And that's what these men did. They heard about what Paul was doing in the name of Jesus. And so they wanted to take that power for themselves. And they go into this place where there's these people possessed with evil spirits. And they, they say, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. They don't even know Jesus. They don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, it's not about religion. It's not even just about knowing his name in some kind of um, you know, separate sense where you know of Jesus, you know of his power. You need to know Jesus in your heart of hearts. Know him as a real person. Someone that you can have a relationship with. Someone you can talk to. You don't just come here to church to learn about him. You draw near to him to know him. You can speak to him. Any moment of any day. He is within hearing of your prayers. He can be known. Personally. They didn't know Jesus. They knew of him. They heard of his power. They wanted to harness it for their own reasons. And uh, the evil spirits respond and they say, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirits was leapt on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Kind of funny if it wasn't so scary. But... The people that heard about this, they were impressed by the power of God that was at work in that time. And it stirred up many to repentance. And repentance from their wicked works and a turning towards God was part of the means of building the foundation of the church in Ephesus. There can be no true worship of God. There can be no true discipleship without repentance, without a, uh, a regret and remorse of sin and a desire to turn from it to that which is righteous. And that happened in a very dramatic way here among these people. 
It says, And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also, dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And it says, Many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So consider a few things about true repentance. True repentance. First of all, This uh, repentance, it was, in this sense, it was a very public thing. When they came, it says they came and showed their deeds. Uh, They weren't hiding their sins. It says, he that hideth his sins shall not prosper. But they came and they showed it. They, They admitted it. They were exposed for their sins. And so their repentance uh, involved a confession of sin. They showed their deeds. Uh, secondly, we see that this was, uh, in as much as was possible, this was a, um, there was a commitment to this. Now, they had these, these works, these books of spells and enchantments and uh, potions and whatever it was that made up their old way of worshiping their idols. They came and they burned them. They destroyed them. Their repentance meant there was no going back. There was commitment. And then, third, we also see it was costly. There was a sacrifice that took place. Uh, they didn't, they didn't uh, second-guess it or question it or say, you know what, we could, we could sell these, these uh, evil things and at least make some money and maybe we could give that money to the poor. And No. They were willing to pay the price necessary to be done with their sin, to leave it behind. And in that uh, repentance and turning towards the faith of Jesus Christ laid a foundation of what would become one of the most important, influential churches of the ancient world and an example to us today. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We pray that the examples of that, those things that have happened to your disciples in ages past would be an example and a lesson to us today. God, we thank you for the work that you have done in our life. We thank you for bringing us to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray for each one here that we would continue week by week, day by day to grow more and more to see Jesus Christ at the center of our lives, our worship of everything. To understand, God, that we need you to be our all in all in our thoughts and our affections, just as you are the all in all of this entire world and creation that you have made. God, it's all about you. It's not about us. It's not about us as individuals or even our church or any of these things. It's about Jesus and what you are doing in us and in the world for your glory and the good of your people. We thank you for this uh, time of worship and for your word and ask for your continued watch over us in Jesus' name. Amen.